Hello, ho, ho, and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people, and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here on a very cold winter's day in the village of Grasmere alongside a sparkling Christmas tree with author, illustrator, and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. I'm not quite the sparkly Christmas tree you were trying to imply, but (laughs) I haven't got my tinsel on, but I'm really looking forward to Christmas this year. And uh, it's great to be in Grasmere to celebrate the whole essence of the season. Yes, every year we come together for our Christmas podcast. We've been to Dove Cottage one year, talking about a Wordsworth Christmas. We've been along the West Coast with Alan Cleaver, talking about Christmas on the West Coast. Uh, And actually last year we were in Grasmere again and we heard some um, fabulous readings from... uh, Oh, Elaine and Paul Nelson. And we're back here, Mark, because this village is famous, among other things, for one of its confections. (laughs) And in fact, many of our guests, when we ask that question, what's your favourite Cumbrian food or drink, have mentioned the product that comes out of this village. What are we talking about today, Mark? Can I talk about anything other than Grasmere gingerbread? Oh, the very thought of it makes my mouth water with delight. Over the period of time we've been doing Country Stride, gingerbread has been harking there in the back of my mind, thinking, we must cover this topic. When we think of iconic Cumbrian foods, Grasmere gingerbread very much in the top of the list. Great favourite of mine. My sister requests it for Christmas every year. That kind of chewy, crumbly, biscuity, cakey, never quite sure how to describe it really and actually quite spicy oh yes it's crumbly yummy yummy i'd call it it's a family business now in its fourth generation and today we have the company of local lass joanne hunter yeah we're going to take a short stroll today mark around the village we're going to see some of the places that mean a lot to joanne but also critically we're going to hear the story of sarah nelson Sarah is the working class woman who had a very tough life but who went on to develop this secret recipe that is still used to this day and which has delighted generations of people all around the world. I can see Joanne just over there at the edge of the churchyard so let's go and start our Christmas broadcast. Well, I wandered round by the church and beside the River Rolfay. A calm day today and the stream itself reflecting the buildings around it. And it's a lovely setting with the yew trees and a variety of other trees that give this place a certain dignity. I'm in the joyous company of Joanne Hunter. Now, can you give us a little bit of a background on you personally? Hello, it's lovely to be with you today. I am Joanne Hunter from Grasmere Gingerbread. I'm a co-director with my husband, Andrew Hunter. I am a local lass, uh, fifth 
55 now and we're standing uh, in front of the church, St Oswald's, and this is where actually I was christened. And the bridge there, church bridge that goes over the River Rothe, used to walk over there, skipping every day to school, down the road at Grasmere School. So yeah, this is entrenched in me, it's part of my DNA. To be 100% Grasmere girl, it must be wonderful to have that sense of continuity of being here. Absolutely, but I think being a Grasmere girl, as a child I, I used to dream about going beyond here to see what else there was in the world and I think actually working as a child in the gingerbread shop he did that for me enticed me away because all these people used to come in from around the world and when I was a little girl it fascinated me because back then you didn't really go anywhere or, or see anything and you were very much like a country girl a country lass and the bright lights did beckon me I have been away and I have worked in other jobs and worked abroad as well and lived abroad and I think what you do realize is that actually the grass isn't always greener and that you appreciate it so much more by going off and doing that and coming back and realising what it is in the environment and what it is here within the Cumbria culture that makes it and it makes me and Cumbrian people very different. Looking over the water there, I see a little tea garden. I gather that has some certain resonance with you. Yeah, it does actually. It's happy memories. It was a Victorian tea garden and it's a tea gardens now. But um, when I was a little girl, obviously going to and from school, you pass it every day and they'd sell sweets and ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandma, who worked for us at the gingerbread shop, she used to be the baker there. She used to make all her Lakeland specialities because she was a real true Cumbrian woman. In fact, she used to work at what was known as Thirlspot, other side at Ray's, which is um, obviously north. You can say that both sides, whether you're on the Keswick side or the, uh, or the south side and she worked there she went there at 15 to be like the parlour maid she used to give Beatrix Potter her tea so when Beatrix Potter would drive the tups up from uh, Hawkshead over to the tup fair at Keswick she'd drive them over across the rays and she'd stop off at Thirlspot and have her afternoon tea and my uh, nanny hunter used to give Beatrix Potter a tea well we'll take a few steps further open up the story of Sarah Nelson We walk round a little bit further from the church. I'd like to get perspective on Sarah Nelson herself and and the time that she was born into in this area. What was life like uh, when she was young? She was born about 1815 or something? Yeah, she was born in 1815. She was born in um, Bowness. She was illegitimate. Her mother worked in service. Having no father, then her and her sister would have gone with their mother to work and spent most of their early years below stairs, sitting by a fire or carrying buckets of coal and logs, etc., and doing cleaning and no education. That's what inspires me about Sarah, the fact that she had such a hard life and such a clever woman and determined woman without that education. She worked her way all the way up the uh, service ladder. And if you can imagine Downton Abbey scenario um, below stairs and all those different positions, and eventually, through that hard work, she became a cook, which yeah. was obviously quite upstanding within a career below stairs, and she became a cook in a private house in Patterdale. Tourists coming to the area at that time are few in number, and this is before the age of the railway. 
Absolutely. And the only people really travelling through the region was the horse and coaches. And it was a long, hard, rough journey coming up from London, maybe going up to Scotland. Um, so, yeah, it was just all carriages. And so the only places where we to stay were inns, coaching inns. Uh, we've got the context of the time and a little bit about Sarah. It'd be rather nice to hear a little bit more about yourself, Joanne. We'll go a little bit further. What a wonderful place to come into. We've come inside the church, which has a tremendous visual sensation. If you look up, it's as if you're in a, a great barn. But there is more to it than just visual. There's an air, an aroma almost. Can you describe it, Joanne? Even though I've not been in for quite a few months, it's the same smell for the last 50 years. I can smell the wood. I can smell the floor, and the floor is really significant. Sitting here and it, it's really quiet and, you know, it's a winter's day, there's a little bit of the sun just capturing the stained glass windows. And when you sit here, and I've sat here on emotional occasions, whether it's been a wedding or a christening or a funeral or the rush bearing, which is very special in memories for me. But when you sit and you face the altar, when you look through the window, you see the fell. The words from one of the rush bearing hymns talks about as you look up onto the fell. And when I came back as an adult and brought my own children and got my own children involved in the rush bearing, when I used to sing that hymn and look up, I would, I would be full of emotion. In context of this place, rush bearing is very significant. Well, the rush bearing goes back to before this slate floor, this beautiful Lakeland slate floor was in place because then it was just rough earth and it was covered in rushes. What they would do once a year would they take all the rushes away and replenish them with fresh rushes and they'd go down to the lakeshore and harvest fresh rushes, bring them up in a sheet and lay the floor. And this celebration would always take place on the nearest Saturday to St Oswald's Day, which is the, the 5th of August. It's been brought forward now to July, brought it into the academic year into July so that the school children will take part in that event. Your last year at school, at the junior school in Grasmere, you'd be chosen as a rush maiden and you'd wear a green dress and you'd carry the sheet which resembled the sheet taken down to the lake and the rushes put in. It was quite a significant part of your educational journey in Grasmere that you were a rush maiden at the very end. You walked around the village with pride and you were part of that ceremony. And then later on in, in life, I'd carried the maypole with the children round, but earlier on in life, I'd carried one of the ribbons on the maypole with all my people that I was at school with, many who are still in the village. It's all part of your history, your growing up. But as part of the procession, you come into the church and there's the ceremony and all the bearings of all the flowers and all the rushes would be displayed on the walls and, and on the font. And the smell, when you come in, you know, the days after that event, the smell in the church was just amazing. And traditionally back then on the Monday after the Saturday, you'd come collect your bearing and you'd walk down to school and there'd be a, a rush bearing sports and all the children would take part in a rush bearing sports, followed by a rush bearing tea before the procession started you'd all assemble on the church wall 
with your bearing and for your bearing you'd be given a tea ticket um 5p and the tea ticket would also allow you a piece of rush bearing gingerbread and it's important to let people know and define the difference between grassmere gingerbread and rush bearing gingerbread rush bearing gingerbread is like what you would know as a gingerbread so it's like a soft cake parking very treacly and sticky and the rush bearing gingerbread would be stamped with St Oswald's on the top the reason that you were given gingerbread and the reason that we make gingerbread is because back in the olden days, ginger was a very expensive commodity. It was like as if you'd have gold on chocolates nowadays. And so it was something of a treat. And so that's why it was special. And that's why you had gingerbread, because it came from far off shores and it was only really the wealthy that could afford it. So it was very much like a special treat. Can you give a, a little bit of a picture of the village from when you were a child, I remember that Sam Reed is, is one of the consistent shops that's always been a bookshop. Yeah, well, Sam Reed brings back happy memories because when I was a child, obviously, I'd work in the shop, save up my pennies, and, and then I'd go into... They had a children's section. I spent hours in the back of this children's section in Sam Reed, just a fascinating little bookshop. But the actual children's section used to be the bank, Martin's Bank, outside the bank was a bank guard and he used to sit in a three-piece suit on a chair outside the little door which is now a little takeaway coffee shop in Grasmere and then you come round the village just past the um, the tea gardens and we had Mr Roberts with a shoe shop and then we had the jeweler's shop and then we used to have Riki's the weavers which the Americans used to love and then going the other way, up what's called um, College Street, we had Lakes Perfumery. When we were children coming home from school, we'd always go in there and have a spray of all the free scents. You could always smell it when you, people came into the gingerbread shop. They'd been in the perfumery because it was quite strong. And then carrying on up there, past Sam Reed's and, and doing a right as if you're going towards the park along that stretch there you had the butchers um, it's funny because my grandma used to tell me a story because she said all at once it was the butcher was called Mr Chop in the village and then we had Sam Reed the bookseller and we even had a, a policeman and the policeman at the time was called Mr Steele as well <laughs> but then you come past then you've got the news agents which is Barney's news box now and then you had the co-op and the co-op was the old cooperative and the co-op manager used to live in a flat above the co-op and my nanny hunter would come in and she'd have a basket and you'd go every day to the shops to get fresh food yeah. you wouldn't go to a supermarket and she'd go in and, and it wasn't where you went round self-service there was a counter and you know there was a cheese counter and they cut the cheese and they wore white jackets and it was all Big very scales, yeah there? I'm not that old but it makes me sound really old doesn't it I visualize it all. Yeah. this is talking about a town here yeah. we sort of village what was really good about it is that you actually had a lot of provision it wasn't the case of where people that live here have to go out of the village to to get the things they need or services well that gives us a picture of this vibrant community but uh, as a young guy you were actually working in the gingerbread shop I was weaned on gingerbread. You were a Spice Girl even then. Uh, I was, and it was very much a family business, and all hands to the pump. It's very hard work. My grandma used to put the ovens on at, at 3am in the morning because it used to take a long time for the oven to heat up then. And all of us, because I'm one of three, all of us worked in the business. My mum did as well. And my early memories of being in the shop was standing on a box so that I could serve over the counter. Sometimes I was tipped, actually, because, you know, they thought it was really cute, especially by the Americans. In the 50 years, has tourism changed at all? 
massively. As a child, at the end of October, the shop closed. There was no stock on the shelf. I can remember one last Saturday in October, my dad said to me, you can go in the shop and everything that you sell, you can have the money for. And But there was nothing on the shelf. There was a few bars of mint cake and a few little paper bags. And I was like trying to sell everything to everybody. But there was nothing left on the shelf. It was just completely bare. And it has this really weird sense. It's like sad when there's nobody there. Like when it was in COVID, like going in. Oh, must have been. And from that time all the way through till the week before Easter, so preceding Good Friday, the shop was closed. And the only time we went in was at Christmas and we baked. And then it was for me to cut out brown paper and wrap parcels with string for the Christmas mail order. But that's the only time you went in and it just, it sat quiet and sad, tired because it needed the rest from the, from the busy summer months. And the staff that we employed back then either went on what was the dole then or because there was no other employment because everything shut down. You'd walk through the village and it would be like a ghost town. I mean, it was nice because you'd get to see all the locals and you'd literally talk to each other as you were in and out of the village. But there was nobody else around. All the hotels, everything just closed down. So very, very different. So we're talking 50 years ago. And then gradually that expanded and then some hotels would open at Christmas and and then it just gradually grew and grew and obviously people's habits have changed and you can't say it's a season what you just say is just like peaks and troughs of when it isn't busy and when it's not and fascinating last week beginning of December and I'm standing in the village I'm having to move around the pavement as we're talking because There's people, loads of people, and it's wonderful for the economy. You look at other areas, like if you look at Northumberland or you look at Devon, they don't have that all-year-round tourism that we do. So I think as a county, we've worked really hard for this. And even now, after COVID, we've seen changes. So we've seen new markets come because they couldn't go abroad. So there's new people that experience the region, which is wonderful. Um, we've obviously lost a lot of international tourism, and right now, a lot more Americans coming. The changes that are happening across the world, socially and political, have an impact on what's going on right here in that shopping Grasmere. Well, we'll leave this gorgeous little church. I want to come back in here, but we'll pop outside and explore the life a little bit further of Sarah Nelson. Well, we come round from the church and we come to this wonderful iconic building which is very much the focus of this whole story in many respects. Lichgate Cottage or Church Cottage, whatever you might call it. Um, can you describe it to us, Joanne? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, it is quite iconic, isn't it? I mean, it was built actually in 1630 and it was built by public subscription as the village school. And it was then that the rich boys, not girls, um, had to pay a penny a day to come here. So it wasn't built as a residential building or a shop. It was built purely as the village school. And as you can see, really thick Lakeland stone walls with the, that really heavy natural cladding. And then just look at that, the Beck stones around the edge of it. And you know what? It's really hot in there in the summer with the ovens going but it's really cold in the winter. I can remember as a child, actually, in the bakery, it's that, like we talked about in the church, that beautiful Lakeland slate floor. And when the 
uh, the gingerbread used to come out of the ovens, the trays of gingerbread used to go on the floor to cool. Obviously, um, through uh, health and safety now, we don't put them on the floor and they're on cooling racks. And actually, the fan to cool them is right in that corner there. And I think it was one of the broadsheets once said that I, we were purposely pumping out gingerbread smell to the tourists that were visiting Wordsworth Grave, which is obviously, if you follow around on the path here, that's where you come to. Actually, there's only um, two rooms to it. There is the, the shop as you come in, but the shop room you see would have been the main schoolroom, and then this little back room that you can see through this lovely little leaded window probably would be the headmaster's office and that's where we do all the secret mixing of the gingerbread we'll slip back to dear sarah she was uh, single when we last mentioned her living in patterdale um life was just about to change for her very much so it was changing i mean she'd actually got to quite a way up in the domestic ladder by becoming the cook over in a private house in patterdale and it was there that she met wilfred nelson and uh, wilfred had lost his uh, first wife they married and they married at the church in the valley over there and they decided quite entrepreneurial i thought to actually take on a grocer's store in lancaster and they moved down there, presumably they rented it, and it was there that they set off their married life together. It wasn't long before Sarah gave birth to John Nelson, her son, but living in Lancaster, obviously it's city, and as you well know back then, um, obviously a lot of disease, and in built-up places, sanitation wasn't good, and unfortunately John died at the age of six with cholera and it was that we believe that was the prompt for Sarah to think I need to go back home and home was the Lake District she had her sister here a half sister and um, that's when she um, came back and she had two daughters by then Mary Ann and Diana and um, she came back here to Church Cottage. So this poor needy family were able to move into a, a former schoolhouse it was the rich children that came to this building who could afford a penny a day. And as I said, only males. The females of the wealthy were at home with a governess doing music and reading and, and needlework. But when education became compulsory, all the village children couldn't fit into this building. So they had to build a new school down the road on Stock Lane. And they built the Grasmere CAVE school. And that's the school that my parents went to and I went to. And so this building was then vacant. Now, the building itself, as it is today, it's owned by the church so we are tenants of the diocese of carlisle and they put it up for rent for this poor and needy family and sarah and wilfred and the girls um fit the bill so we have her and her husband living here with their family um life was tough life was hard and of course it was in those times and sarah and wilfred needed to pay the rent and they needed to put food on the table and they needed to keep themselves warm wilfred he was part-time grave digger. He also used to take the landed gentry fly fishing. He was a very good fly fisherman out on the lake and other bits and bobs that he could do. Sarah, she would take in washing and mending and she then got herself a job working across the road at a private house for a wealthy lady called Lady Farquhar um, who basically had the day lodge as a hunting lodge and she would entertain guests, etc. And she had a Swiss chef as well. And Sarah used to go across and help the Swiss chef and do all the baking 
all the cakes and bread, etc. And it was there that she developed the gingerbread recipe. And the chef said to her, it's fabulous, why don't you make to sell it? And obviously that's what she did. She had a, a tree trunk outside the front door with a tabletop on and she made the fresh gingerbread wafting out onto the street beautiful smell of it just like it is today and she sell bottles of aerated water which as we know today is sparkling water little cakes called Helvellyn cakes we presume these were peaked cakes with maybe a little bit of icing on the top like snow <laughs> and uh, she'd sell her wares to the first Victorian tourists We've got the initial sense of gingerbread. We'll walk a little bit more and talk about how it's all comes together. Well, despite the relief blur in the background, we've come a little, just a little further, and Joanne, in her inimitable way, has brought to my nostrils a little bag with something in it. I wonder what is in there, Joanne. It's actually still warm. Oh. oh, oh. It's all hand-wrapped in oh. pure vegetable parchment, oh. as it always has been. A tradition that goes back in time. I want to try Oh, some. no. Hear the crumble. His mouth's watering. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I may be a little wild. Can you describe it to me, what it's all about? It's very, very different. It's not like a traditional gingerbread. It's a cross between a biscuit and a cake. It's crispy and chewy. It's got that crumbly top. Now, I've got another bit in my mouth, but um, can you give us a little bit of a clue about the secret recipe involved with this? Since um, October 2021, the actual ingredients are on the packet now um, because of Natasha's law. But what's still secret is the quantities and the methodology of it. And, of course, it is a registered trademark, so it can't be copied. Through the years, has the actual process of creating it, has that changed at all? Not really. In fact, it's quite labour-intensive. The only machinery that we have is a big mixer and the electric oven and electric fan is like handmade, homemade product. So Sarah had a range and she would put the, the gingerbread in the range and bake it in there. And when I was a little girl, we had Sarah's trays, which were just half the size of the trays now. Um, so really, apart from electricity, there isn't much difference in actually the whole process of making the gingerbread. One of the things that people talk about is the crumbly bits. What is that all about? Mm, well, that's part of the secret, isn't it? Because <laughs> obviously you do get a lot of crumb that comes off it we're making it and when you're eating it it goes all around your mouth and that's one of the things that makes it isn't it but with the crumbs we don't have any crumbs left over because when I was a child the crumbs that were came off the trays that were scraped off at the end they went into a big bag and they went up to the um, piggery in Grasmere they were fed to the pigs we had no wastage and we've always been very green we always reuse things within the business then the piggery closed down and we had this surplus of crumbs. Some of the staff would then use the crumbs to make a crumble or a cheesecake base or make, put it on the top of a, a, you know, a lemon mousse or something like that. We thought, oh, it's got so much versatility as the crumb. And so we started bagging up the crumbs to sell. And it does get a bit fisticuffs when people want the crumbs because they're in high demand because they do make great crumble toppings, cheesecake bases, sprinkled on top of ice cream, porridge. And also... 
We do a lovely, like a chocolate, an orange chocolate lolly that's made locally for us in a bag with crumbs and very much like, what can you remember, like a, a dip dab? Yes. So we have those and some of the money from that goes to the Cumbria Wildlife Trust to go towards the dipper bird because we call that the Grassmere dipper. Ah, or the duca. In what way do you uh, distinctively eat it yourself? Well, I'm, I'm a real coffee connoisseur, <laughs> so I love it. I mean, it really complements itself with fresh coffee. Slightly warm, mm-hmm. but as a child, um, it's really naughty because I used to help um, my nanny hunter in the bakery and she used to make the rum butter. And I'd lick the bowl out or scrape it onto a huge spatula and <laughs> spread rum butter on top of the <laughs> gingerbread. Of course, this is, I should point out, our Christmas episode so have you got any christmas recipes that would go very well with gingerbread a lot of our customers would say they love it with a hot chocolate Mm. or like a spicy hot chocolate as well it's wonderful with mulled wine complements itself really really well Mm. and um if you do like a christmas pudding like you know with like spices with the cloves and orange within a cheesecake great on the bake and again like a spicy crumble with apples and sultanas one of the things we haven't actually alighted upon is why uh, the West Coast and Whitehaven play into this story. In Victorian times, over and above London, Whitehaven was the second largest port. Remarkable, isn't it? Absol- absolutely. And what was coming in there was all the sugars and the spices from the Caribbean and the Americas. Some of them were coming in illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how the Cumbria pantry changed. And so sugar was introduced and a lot of the very plain traditional Cumbrian food in the farming community changed because of this influx of all these different flavours and that's why you get the spices in the Cumberland sausage that's why you get the Cumberland rum nicky and rum was obviously a a big thing rum coming in Uh, and that's why we have rum butter and actually rum butter as a dish is ancient how it came about there's lots and lots of stories how rum butter evolved one of the stories is that one of the ships was shipwrecked and all the ingredients that were on the ship all ran into one and the sailors survived on their dry ship crackers with this spread which was the butter and the sugar and the rum Another story is that across at Whitehaven, they were coming in on the boat and the Coast Guard had seen them and it was all illegal uh, contraband and they got into a cave near Whitehaven and they got up onto a ledge. and they got Allegedly, all, anyway. Yeah, allegedly, and they got all the cargo on the ledge and they stayed there for days and eventually the Coast Guard gave up on them thinking that they would all drown, but they were up on the ledge and they had the bottles of rum and the sugar and the butter and they were mixing it all together and surviving off that. But but after that, rum butter was then traditionally served um, at christenings and it's also often served at funerals as well. A lot of families on the West Coast have um, rum butter bowls, which is like a, a family heirloom that's passed down through generations. And there's a wonderful display of these rum butter bowls actually at the Beacon Museum in Whitehaven. And when a, there is a new addition to the family, they'd make fresh rum butter put it into the bowl and serve it at the christening and the next woman to put the knife into the rum butter will be the next one smitten with a child. 
the nursing mother would have been given the rum butter because the butter would resemble the goodness of life, the sugar for the sweetness of life and the rum for the spirit of life. And then some recipes have nutmeg in and that is for the spice of life. Uh, And that's how it all evolved. And it's a very, very traditional Cumbria dish or Cumberland, as I should say, because before 74, we had Cumberland and Westmoreland, those side of the race. But what's important to me is, is that we promote Cumbria and its food history because it's fascinating and I really want to keep things like that alive. You come across a road which is a bustling street, alive with people. And looking back at the shop, you've got lovely little Christmas trees with lights on. Now, we come across the road to what people would identify as a National Trust building or shop, but that's long since lost that function. Yeah, absolutely. The building is uh, called Church Style. Where we're standing now is what used to be the little Hazy's garden shop many, many years ago. This building and, and the building behind it, a very ancient building, this used to be a village inn. The top floor of it is a flat and this is where I actually spent my childhood. So work was uh, not very far away and we, as we do now, we, we live, live and breathe the business. That's one of the downfalls of running your own business. I can remember it so much as a child is looking out the window and if you see there's a light and the light's on now because we're losing the daylight. But that light there, when the snow was on the road there wasn't the same amount of traffic and it was thick and all the greys were snow laden and and the light used to reflect off and it was all very twinkly and it was dreamlike and I can remember as a child you know walking through the village when the snow came no there was no traffic there was snow piled high and onto the mountains and sometimes you'd see the snow on there maybe to sometimes April May could you give us a feel for your family Christmas here In some respects, it was quite simple compared to, I suppose, what today's Christmases are like for children. We didn't have stockings, but we had pillowcases, old old pillowcases, um, that were filled with presents. And it was really funny because you knew everybody in the village and the neighbours all gave... um, selection boxes so because there was three of us we'd be piled high of selection <laughs> boxes and another thing was was uh, as I got a little bit older was um Christmas whisk drives simple things in life uh Nanny Hunter would teach me many things not just baking but also playing board games and card games and as a child she taught me whist Wednesday evenings would be regular whist drives in the Buff Club. They were mostly with um, people over 60. (laughs) And I was like 11, 12, 13. And actually, I became so good at it, I actually played in the regional finals for Cumbria when I was about 15. I was really good at whist. But the Christmas whist drives were the best because everybody came out for a Christmas whist drive and uh, the prices were really, really good. And you'd have it in, say, like the Traveller's Rest in Grassmere and it was really atmospheric. I do remember that quite a lot as a child. We'd often have socials in the village hall, which were really nice. Um, The Buff Club, again, would put on... um, a children's Christmas party and one of the local men would dress up as Father Christmas and I think they would give away the game that it wasn't Father Christmas. Well, we're coming towards the latter end of the podcast. It's been absolutely magical. Uh, but I think you're going to show us to a rather special grave.
Well, we come back into the churchyard, and Joanne, can you guide us towards this very special grave? Yeah, absolutely. So come come through the Lich Gate, and then you'll see the, the back of the shop on your left and the sign to Wordsworth's grave, but come a little bit further down as if you're walking out, and just before you get to the big, gorgeous yew tree with all the branches on the right-hand side... Just before the church itself. Just before the church itself. If you go one, two, three, four back there is a grave that's got a quite a nice fancy top on it can you see the point as it comes up Uh and it's quite clean because we look after the gravestone because obviously Sarah doesn't have any any family unfortunately and this is where she's resting and what's really lovely about this is that actually she can see the back of the shop and we can see it from the window and it's a magical connection it is and it's like She's looking at us and she's keeping an eye on it and I hope that she looks on with with admiration. It'd be rather nice if you could uh, read the actual wording on the gravestone. In affectionate remembrance of Wilfred and he died at 75 years old, 1880. But it says underneath, also of Sarah, wife of the above, who died February the 11th, 1904, aged 88 years and also their beloved daughter, Diana, March 21st, 1869, aged 18 years, which is very sad. But also of Mary Ann Metcalfe. She'd only just got married. Um, I think she'd only been married about 18 months. She died in 1870. She died the year after Diana, and she died at 22. Oh. Both of them died with TB. Oh, and then under there also is Anne Kemp as well. And she died in Grasmere, and that is um, Sarah's sister. So Sarah's life was actually very, very tragic. Not only did she lose her son, but then she lost her husband. She lost the two daughters first, um, with TB, close to each other. Then she lost Wilfred. Anne, her sister, moved in with her to keep her company, and then she lost Anne. And on her death certificate, which I have, it says that Sarah, at the age of 88, which was a fabulous age, that in that era, somebody of a working-class background that, you know, wouldn't have had good living conditions or of good health, she actually died. It says cause of death, sheer exhaustion. And I feel that probably it was sheer exhaustion. It's staggering. And she had a, a mixture of sadnesses and tragedies and yet she's bequeathed something amazing. Yeah, she, she really has. And what you have to remember is, is that she has given not only the food forum what she's created with the gingerbread, but actually for Cumbria itself. And she should be up there with Wordsworth or Wainwright or Potter because she has created something and she's, she's created history for the region. And as my husband always says... We're just custodians of this business. May it long live on and continue and and in Sarah's name because she was a fascinating woman because she didn't have the opportunity that some of the others have had. She was intelligent enough to trademark the celebrated Grasmere gingerbread. Also, she put the recipe in the bank and she kept it a secret and she created a really successful business at that time. This actually is somebody who meant a huge amount to you and you embody in so many ways. 
she means a lot to me. I never lose sight of her. I'm sorry, I'm going to get emotional. She's such an amazing... She was such an amazing lady. She had such a traumatic life. Um, and she came from nothing, and she left really with, with, with nothing because she lost everything. She lost all her family. She might have left the business, but she left with nothing. But she didn't come with any background. She didn't where Potter came from money, where Wordsworth got his support from his contemporaries. But none of them came from from somewhere who who had to do this. People become successful because they are passionate about what they do and they work very hard to achieve that. And this is a prime example of somebody, a woman like this. She's not only an, an aspiration, but an inspiration. Well, you've given us the uh, emotional tie that you have with Sarah. Quickfire question reactions. Um, have you got a favourite fell? I'm looking at Silver How now, so that's an obvious one for here. But have you a particular one you love being on? I spent a lot of my early teens up Easdale, up the Easdale Valley, around um, what's known as Steel Bridge and around the Dove, up to the town for picnics. Easdale Town, definitely. It didn't have a refreshment hut then? (laughs) No, it didn't, but there used to be a refreshment hut there many years ago. We do need a refreshment hut there. (laughs) Okay, Wainwright or Wordsworth? I think neither. Sorry. (laughs) I think Wordsworth was drummed into me at school for the Wordsworth Prize. Um, I'm not a great fell walker. I think for me, maybe, I think it could be either Cunliffe or Potter. Cunliffe? Who was Cunliffe? Oh, Postman Pat author. Oh, God. Um, Which which I used to read to my uh, eldest daughter. She was a big Postman Pat fan. So, yes, I think, yeah, I like that one. That's very good. Uh, Herdwick or Red Squirrel? Mm, I love Red Squirrels, but I've got to say Herdwick because as a child, I spent many, many hours up on the fell with the local farmer feeding the lambs and it was one of my favourite pastimes. I loved it. Have you a favourite view within the Lake District? I think one of my favourite views is if you drive on the main road as if you're going to the west coast and you look right across to all the western lake mountains, you're bearing round to Whitehaven and then you then reflect back and look down. Down Ennerdale. Yes, and what you've got, it's that vision that you would draw where you've got these great mountains, whole range, you've got like a massive range of it and it's just, it's so dramatic, it's amazing. That's the spirit that we love to hear. Have you a favourite walk you'd like to share with listeners? I think one of my most walked walk, and obviously so many different memories, has to be... Can you guess it? Uh, Eastdale. No, no, it's not. It's Grasmere Lake. Oh. It's always different when you walk around. It always changes whether it's a bright sunny day or whether the mist is lying across the surface of the water. And again, it's just so many memories, whether being a child on a rowing boat or our school trip was a picnic at White Moss on the beach at that end. When you drive into Grasmere and you come around that corner at Penny Rock, it's there and it doesn't matter what day it is, it's always in a different mood. And uh, Helm Crag looks proudly over the village, doesn't it, from there? Yeah, it does. The lion and the lamb. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the lady playing the organ. 
So well, they say. What I, tune does she play, by the way? Mm, <laughs> it would definitely be a hymn. Oh, very good. Okay. Uh, have you a favourite season of the year when you're here? I think the favourite season for me is spring, when the light creates longer days. And there's something really lovely about the end of the day, the shop day, so like at 5.30, 6 o'clock, and then there's like a lull because people are then back at their accommodation or gone home for their meals, and it goes quite quiet. And then there's just this lovely bird song, mm. early evening, and it carries on through, and it's just... I love that, you know, when we come out of the winter. It's like a, a rebirth. We're into another season and there's a change in the atmosphere. There's more of a buzz. The colours are changing. Is and this before the daffodils arrive? I think that just always gives you hope, doesn't it? If you were to take a book uh, to a desert island, um, a Lakeland book or a Cumbrian book, what might that book be? Can I have two? Well, yeah, they could All right. One of the key books that I think really sums up a lot about the Lake District, which I love and it's fascinating, is Collingwood. I think it's the Lake Counties. It's an early guide. When we say Lake District, we should never think of it just as that interior bit of the National Park. Cumbria and the outlying areas have got so much history yeah. and it's fascinating. Um, and the other one is the Yellow Earl. Oh, thank you. Mm. Got a lather in there. Mm. If you were Prime Minister for the day, what one thing would you invoke to secure the heritage, traditions and landscapes of Cumbria? Well, if I was Prime Minister for the day, it would be quite dangerous. (laughs) 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 But Because I've got lots of things on my agenda that I would do. I think what's really important, I think, that would help the region would be to keep the region alive because we need to have people living here we need to have communities we can't have tourism we can't have everything that we offer for people to enjoy without a community without people here and therefore we need to address the housing situation if we don't have any housing nobody can live here and what will happen is this will just become a theme park yeah and it would empty it would When the time comes and a few people gather to remember you in a place that means something very special to you, where might that be? That is a really difficult question to ask because there's so many many places. I think if I had to choose somewhere in the Lake District, I think I have um, a connection to the Eden Valley. I lived in Penrith for quite some time. I loved living there and my children were brought up there, hence the fact that one of them is called Eden Rose and the other one's called Amon and both the rivers running together. I think the Eden Valley is very beautiful and I think maybe on the shores of Allswater. journey's end and we're back in the little village green outside Sam Reed's bookshop and it's dark now Mark night is closed in so we're beside these lovely sparkly trees and in fact there's sparkle all around the place here it's looking really festive in lovely grass man. yeah the place has come alive with the lights 
And the podcast today, Mark, what an interesting story. I hadn't quite realised how tough Sarah's life was. I mean, there's so much tragedy anyway. And also that, as Joanne describes so well, that really hard working class life. Yes. Sarah didn't have the advantages that so many people have today. If you were poor, you were poor. And you didn't get support, you didn't get state support, you didn't get pensions, you didn't get any kind of social benefits. You lived on your labours and your invention. And it seems to me that Sarah, for all her tragedies, managed to create something really amazing. If she was to be able to come back now and see what's happened to the humble creation in her bakery... Yeah, you were lucky, Mark. You managed to get some... Sneaky gingerbread. Yes, it's in my pocket now. I've still got it. I might share it a little bit with you, Dave. (laughs) I think that would be appropriate. I think I'll give you a quarter. (laughs) Right, well, anyway, that's it. That's our Christmas uh, broadcast uh, coming to an end. On the subject of Christmas and wintry weather, Mark, I was on the top of Scarfell just yesterday. Scarfell? Uh, Well, I'm blowed. In the snow, and yes, I'll be blowed. It was blowing an absolute blizzard on the top there, I have to say. I went up from Brotherill Keld, probably my favourite long walk in the Lake District. Oh, if you go by the terrace route, is it? Fox's Tarn. Oh, Fox's Tarn, I know that. Oh, Cam Spout. Cam Spout, Great Moss. Oh, magic. Superb route, absolutely superb pitch black by the time reached the car. I saw the photograph from the slight side. Uh, yeah. It must have been the tail end of the light, almost. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And looking down over Burmore Tarn, and all those little tiny tarns on the top of, I think, was it Great Howe? This is Great my... Howe, yeah. That's one of my discoveries. <laughs> is it? Yes. <laughs> yes. What should I say? I gave it a whole chapter in my Fell Ranger. <laughs> well, it's rather lovely. It's got a string of little tarns on the top of that. Yeah, it's a, a necklace, absolutely. That's and then there's some smaller tarns going down towards Boot as well. That's, yes, that's Stony right. tarn. Sprinkling. Yeah, there's uh, another one again. Eel. Eel tarn, that's right. Yeah. Regular housekeeping, Mark. We are on episode number... 94. For all previous 93 episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. If you'd like to support us, give us a little Christmas gift, you can... Buy our books, www.countrystride.co.uk. There's four of our guidebooks there. All profits help to support this podcast. Uh, You can also give us a little gift on Patreon. As little as £2 a month will uh, support us to help us continue making uh, these podcasts. Again, just go to www.countrystride.co.uk. And I think that's it. Next up will be our review of the year coming in a few days' time to the airwaves. Uh, After that, we've got some lovely things lined up for the new year. And I think we're kicking off with um, Hugh Walpole and Catbells. Very, very interesting, that one, Mark. That will be very popular. Everybody knows about Catbells, but few people these days seem to know about Hugh Walpole. So that will be a great revelation, because in his time, his books were about the best-selling books they were in Britain. That's going to be good. That's it, then, us signing off on this Christmassy night. We'll see you in that little gap between Christmas and New Year. Happy Christmas, everybody. 